You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends, the listener's notes of 16 lectures given in 1904-1905. This is Lecture 14 of 16 lectures, translated by Paul King, given in Berlin on the 19th of May, 1905. The deeper we penetrate into Richard Wagner's work, the deeper we enter into theosophical and mystical questions and enigmas of life. It is of exceptional significance that having worked on the whole prehistory of the European peoples in four stages in his title Ring of the Nibelung, Wagner then created an eminently Christian drama, the work with which he actually completed his life, his title Parsifal. We need to penetrate Wagner's whole personality if we want to understand what is really contained in this Parsifal. Ever since the 40s, he had had the idea of working on the figure of Jesus of Nazareth. He wanted, and fragments of this still exist, to write a drama called Jesus of Nazareth, a work in which infinite love, in the way it took effect in Jesus of Nazareth for the whole of humanity, would be depicted. He wanted to create this, but couldn't get beyond the basic idea. In the 50s, readers aside, 40s and 50s here refer to 1840s and 1850s, end of readers aside. In the 50s, he sketched out his drama titled Die Sieger, The Victors. In these dramas, we can see from what depths of his worldview Wagner drew his intuitions. Let's look briefly at the content of the drama Die Sieger. Ananda, a youth of high caste, is loved passionately by Prakriti, a Chandala girl, a girl from a despised caste. But he renounces all earthly sensual love and becomes a disciple of Buddha. The way Wagner envisioned it, the Chandala girl had been a member of the Brahmin caste in a previous incarnation, who at that time had spurned with haughty contempt the love of a Chandala youth. Her karmic punishment now was to be reborn into the Chandala caste. Once she has worked on herself, to the point where she can forego her love, she also becomes a disciple of Buddha. You can see that Wagner had already apprehended the problem of karma in all its depths, when in the fifties he set about creating such a profoundly serious music drama as Dizieger. All these thoughts finally come together in his Parsifal. But at the center of Parsifal there is also the question of Christ. There is an important moment in the history of the Middle Ages at the turn of the 12th and 13th centuries. Wolfram von Eschenbach was active at this time, who, out of the deepest spirituality of the Middle Ages, worked the mystery of Parsifal into a literary form. There was something living in those who had a spiritual life during the Middle Ages, which in initiated circles was called an elevation or intensification of love. The minstrels of courtly love, minnesingers, had existed before this time and continued to do so afterward, but there was a great difference between what had previously been regarded as sensual worldly love 
and what arose later in Christianity as refined, purified love. An important monument to this turning point in medieval spiritual life is preserved for us in Hartmann von Auer's titled Der Arme Heinrich, Poor Henry. This deeply spiritual work is permeated by the spiritual teaching the Knights of the Crusades had brought back with them from the East. Let's recall the content of Der Arme Heinrich. A Swabian knight for whom up to now everything had gone well is stricken by an incurable disease, by leprosy, and can only be cured by the sacrificial death of a pure virgin. A virgin is found who is prepared to sacrifice herself for him. They go together to a famous doctor in Salerno, in Italy. The maiden is about to be sacrificed, but at the last moment Heinrich refuses to let the sacrifice proceed. The maiden's life is spared, Heinrich becomes well again, and they marry. Here again we find the image of a pure virgin who sacrifices herself for someone who had previously lived only in sensuality and is now saved by her. From the viewpoint of the Middle Ages, there is a mystery hidden here. Minna singing was ascribed to an ancient stream that had come up through the four successive stages of European cultural development, just as we find them depicted in the legends of Richard Wagner's tetralogy. Love, arising from sensuality, was regarded with hindsight in that period as something that should be overcome. Minna singing was to arise in a new form through the higher spiritual power of Christianity. If we want to understand what was happening here, we have to draw all the factors together in order to recall the character, the physiognomy of those times. Then we can understand what motivated Wagner to portray these legends. There was an ancient legend, a primordial legend, that we can find in the oldest Germanic peoples, and in a somewhat different form in Italy and other lands as well. Let's look at the basic outline of this legend. A man who has known all the pleasures of the world makes his way now into a kind of subterranean cave. There he meets a woman of ultra-attractive, appealing power. He experiences certain pleasures of paradise there. But then he is overcome by a longing for the upper world, and after some time returns from the mountain. This is particularly clearly portrayed in the Tannhäuser legend. When we consider this legend, we have in it a beautiful symbol for the aspiration of love in the Germanic lands before the great turning point I mentioned. Man's activity in the sensual world, the withdrawal to the pleasures of love in the ancient sense, which one saw embodied in the goddess Venus, and experiencing the distraction from activities in the outer world, through love as a kind of paradisal experience. But in this form the legend has no real center. It has nothing that gives us a view to what is higher. Thus it has arisen from the previous view, from the preceding form of love. Later in the beginnings of the development of love in spiritual form through Christianity, people wanted to highlight the earlier period, and show the contrast between paradise then and the idea of paradise in Christianity. If we want to understand Wagner, we need to go even deeper. We have looked at our fifth root race. After floods had covered Atlantis, the post-Atlantean sub-races emerged, the ancient Indian, the ancient Persian, then the Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Chaldean, then the Greco-Latin. 
and after the decline of Roman civilization, our fifth sub-race arises, in which we are living today, and has significance particularly for Christian Europe. It was not that Richard Wagner was consciously aware of everything I have just mentioned, but he had an absolutely certain feeling for the situation of the fifth sub-race in the world, and experienced the whole task of the present as a religious one, in a way that even in theosophy couldn't be better formulated. You know that each race, in quotes, was inspired by great initiates, and that the original inspiration for the fifth Atlantean sub-race proceeded from the so-called Proto-Semites. You know that as Atlantis was swallowed by floods, those who migrated away and were preserved from the destruction of the race were led by a Manu, by a divine guide, to the Gobi Desert in Asia. Waves of civilization went out from there, initially via India to the Middle East, Persia, Assyria, to Egypt, and then to Southern Europe, to Greece, Rome, and later into our regions. The first two waves of Semitic civilization are historically untraceable. They are the impulses preserved by the Indian and ancient Persian race. But when we look at the Chaldean-Egyptian subrace, we have to say that a great Semitic impulse took place there, from which the people of Israel derive their name. Christianity can be traced back to a Semitic wave of this kind, which then extended into the civilization of Greece and Rome. If we follow this cultural wave still further, we find the Semitic influence spreading through all of Europe through the Moorish peoples who invaded Spain, which even the Christian monks could not evade. In this way, the primordial Semitic impulse reaches into the fifth root race. We see that in this one great stream, primal culture, is influenced five times. We have a great spiritual stream growing from the south toward another stream that is developed in the north through four stages of primal culture, until the two streams flow together. At the turn of the 12th and 13th centuries, a worldly and naive people is influenced by the culture coming up from the south. The incursion of a new culture was experienced like a spiritual stream of fresh air. Wolfram von Eschenbach was entirely within the influence of this spiritual stream. The northern culture is symbolized in the legend of Tannhäuser, where the impulse also comes from the south. Everywhere we find something we can define as the Semitic impulse. But there was something that people felt very powerfully, that the Germanic race was the last limb of an evolutionary process, that something completely new had to come, that something completely different was in preparation for the fifth root race, namely the high mission of Christianity. There was a longing in the Germanic lands at that time for a new form of Christianity. A new Christianity had to be created. It had to be released from what it had undergone in the South. Christianity had to be recreated in a purer form. During the period of the Crusades, a dichotomy emerged between Rome and Jerusalem. The Crusaders fought with the battle cries of For Rome and For Jerusalem. The one was referring to Roman Christianity, now just a shell, and the other referred to a pure Christianity people wished to re-establish for which Jerusalem was seen as a spiritual center. This is what the scholastics thought, and so also for Dante in his title Divine Comedy. 
Jerusalem was a center which was to be sought, but more in a spiritual than in an external sense. Thus the fifth sub-race was felt to be a harbinger of the future. The old influences had ceased. Something completely new had to come. A new vortex of world civilization began. It was only an attempt at establishing a proper Christianity, but a kernel of genuine Christianity was to be peeled out of this shell. At the turn of the Middle Ages, people sensed a decline, the end of something they had experienced as a blessing, and at the same time they felt something on the rise in their longing for the new. All this was living in Bochram von Eschenbach. Now, look at our new times. Imagine this feeling renewed in a time when the decline had arrived, and you will find something of what Richard Wagner was experiencing. Much of what was felt earlier as a decline of the race had in the meantime come to pass. From the beginning of his conscious life, Wagner had felt this declining element particularly vividly. For him, there were many symptoms indicating that the decline had come and that a new structuring had to take place. No one felt more deeply than Wagner the chaos that surrounds us today in many respects, the way the lower classes in our time waste away rather than live to the full, the misery of the great mass of European peoples whose mental and spiritual life remains in darkness, who are excluded from all higher education. And because of this, in 1848, Wagner became a revolutionary. We mustn't imagine Wagner as a regular revolutionary, but we need to picture him as having a thought that weighed heavily on his soul, the thought that it is in our hands whether we take part, whether we accelerate the decline, turn the wheel downward or lead it upward. For him, the revolution of 1848 was only an external opportunity. When we look at all this in this way, we will understand how Richard Wagner came to his ideas on the races, how he expressed this in his prose writing. In his work titled Religion und Kunst, Religion and Art, he says roughly the following. Over in Asia, in the Indian nation, we have something of the original energy of the Aryan race. An element is living there of an elevated spiritual life, but only for an elite, for Brahmins. The lower castes are excluded from these teachings, but a high spiritual standpoint is achieved in the Brahmin, which is an expression of the primordial culture. If from there we look to the north, so Wagner said, we have here a naive race that has itself passed through four stages of development, the people who love hunting, of whom we must imagine that as hunters they have pleasure in killing their enemies. Pleasure in killing is for Wagner a symptom of decadence. It is a profound occult fact that life and death are connected in a remarkable way with the development of the individual, toward what is higher, purer, spiritual. Everything a person does by way of causing suffering, of destroying life, drains his soul of spiritual power. No matter what one might think of certain cultural phenomena, any destruction of life is connected with a stripping away of spiritual forces. This is why one who follows the, in quotes, dark path, has to destroy life. This is expressed, for example, in the novel by Mabel Collins titled The Blossom and the Fruit. It is the story of a female black magician who destroys unborn life because she needs it for her reprehensible powers. There is a deep connection between life, death, and man's development. 
This is a lesson that has to be learned and gone through by different peoples. Things were slightly different in a particular period of development when people killed in a naive way. At that time, people experienced the energy in themselves when they killed. This was the situation with the old Germanic hunter tribes. Now, with the coming of Christianity, this has changed. Christian teaching has a prohibition against killing. Killing is a sin. Here we find the origin of a view that led Wagner to be a strict vegetarian. For him, eating meat was a sign of the decline of a race and saw an ascent only being possible when people adopt a form of nourishment that no longer involves killing. The sense that a new impulse had to come also led Wagner to his remarks on the influence of Judaism and modern culture. Wagner was not anti-Semitic in an irrational, hateful sense that one might experience him as being today, but felt that Judaism as such had played its part, that the Semitic influences on our culture had to fade away and something new had to take their place, hence his call for a renewal. This is connected with how he saw our present race. He said to himself, We must make a distinction between development of the race and development of the soul. We have to make this distinction if we are to have any understanding at all of development. We were all once incarnated in the Atlantean race. But while souls have evolved further and climbed higher, the race has fallen into decadence. But every ascent is associated with a decline. For every individual who ennobles and purifies themselves, there is someone who sinks lower. There is a difference between the soul in the racial body and the racial body itself. The more man becomes like the race, the more he loves what is temporal, transient, tied to the attributes of the race the more he belongs to the downfall of the race. The more he frees himself, lifts himself out of racial characteristics, the more the soul has the possibility of incarnating at a higher level. A spirit like Wagner, who distinguishes between evolution of the soul and evolution of the race, simply cannot be anti-Semitic. He knows that it is not souls that have finished their role, but the races that have played out and completed their tasks in the greater picture of world development. This is always what Wagner is expressing when he speaks of Semitism. Wagner feels the downfall, the decline of the races, and the necessity of the ascent of souls. This necessity was also felt by medieval souls like Wolfram von Eschenbach or Hartmann von Aue. Let's go back to the legend of poor Henry. We need to look more deeply into what it means that poor Henry was healed by a pure maiden. Henry is sick because initially he has been living in sensuality. His eye is born out of his race, out of what during that era worked on the senses. This eye, capital, born out of the element active on the senses, becomes sick as the call goes out to humanity to develop itself to a higher stage. His soul becomes sick because it connects itself with what should only live in the race. This is characterized by love coming to expression in a worldly way. But now a higher love should be developed out of the lower love that lives in the race. What is living in the race must be redeemed by something higher, by a higher pure love that sacrifices itself for the aspiring human soul, by what Goethe calls the eternal feminine, which draws us on.
You know I have often spoken about it, that the masculine and feminine are living in every human being, and that because they are separated out, the sensual element intrudes. Redemption by the eternal feminine means that the sensual element is overcome. This is also depicted in title Tristan and Isolde. For both Wolfram von Eschenbach and Richard Wagner, the historical expression for this overcoming is Parsifal. He is the representative of the new Christianity. Parsifal becomes king of the Holy Grail because he liberates what had previously suffered under the servitude of the senses and brings a new principle of love into the world. What is the basis of Parsifal? What is the significance of the Grail? The original legend which emerges around the middle of the Middle Ages tells us that the Grail is the cup Christ used at the Last Supper and in which Joseph of Arimathea collected the blood that flowed from the wounds of Christ Jesus. This cup and the spear that made the wounds were lifted up by angels and preserved hovering in the air until Titorel built a castle on the mountain of Montsalvat, that is, the mountain of healing, in which the cup was preserved as a sanctuary of spiritual knighthood. Twelve knights are gathered there to serve the grail. It has the power to divert death from these knights, to give them what they need to turn their souls to the spiritual. The sight of it always gives them renewed spiritual strength. Now, to start with, we can look at the form Richard Wagner gave the Parsifal Saga. In essence, it is the same as the one we have from Wolfram von Eschenbach. On the one hand, we have the Grail Temple with its knights, and on the other we have the magic castle of Klingsor with its knights, who are the real enemies of the Grail Knights. Two kinds of Christianity are contrasted with each other, the one representing the knights of the Grail and the other Klingsor with his knights. Klingsor is the one who has mutilated himself so as not to fall into sensuality. But he has not overcome the craving for it. He has only made it impossible to satisfy the craving. Hence he still lives in the realm of sensuality. He is served by enchanted maidens. Kundri is the actual temptress in this realm. She draws toward the sensual side everything that comes to Klingsor, in a way belonging to the past. Klingsor is a personification of medieval Christianity, which has become ascetic, has mortified sensuality, but not desire. It does not save one from the seductive force of sensual love which is personified in Kundri. Something higher was seen in a higher spirituality's power of renunciation, which does not deaden sensuality by coercion, but purifies it through higher spiritual knowledge and raises itself up into the realm of purified love. Amphortas and the Grail Knights aspire to this, but up to now it has not been possible to reach this realm. Their efforts failed. As long as the proper spiritual power was absent, Amphortas had to fall to the temptation of Kundri. The higher disposition in Amphortas falls victim to the lower disposition in Klingzor. Thus the Parsifal saga depicts two phenomena side by side. On the one side is Christianity become ascetic, but nevertheless unable to attain higher spiritual knowledge by deadening sensuality. 
On the other side are the representatives of spiritual knighthood, which, however, will always fall victim to Klingsor's temptations, until the Redeemer appears, who will conquer Klingsor. Amfortas is wounded, loses the spear to Klingsor, and must guard the grail as a king racked with pain. Thus higher Christianity is ailing and suffers. In suffering it must guard the real secrets, the mysteries of Christianity connected with the grail, until a Redeemer in a new form appears, and this Redeemer arises in Parsifal. Parsifal must first learn his lessons, undergo tests. He then purifies himself and rises to the spiritual force, to the feeling of the great unity of all being. Wagner depicts profound occult truths in Parsifal, but again unconsciously. The first stage Parsifal passes through is where he learns compassion, compassion for our older brothers, the animals. In an impetuous urge to become a knight, he leaves his mother Herzleida, who dies of grief. Parsifal then fights and kills an animal, a swan. At the sight of the dying animal, he experiences what it means to kill. This is the first stage of his purification. At the second stage, he learns to overcome desire without having to mortify the external organs of sensual desire. He comes to the grail the first time, but does not yet recognize his task. He learns to know it through the initiation of life. He appears to fall to Kundri's temptations, but passes the trial. At the moment when he might have succumbed to the temptation, he wrests from himself the power of desire, a new, a pure love, shines in him like a rising sun. There flashes up what he, we saw arising in the twilight of the gods, quote, et incarnatus est di spiritu sancto ex Maria Virgine, close quote, born of the Spirit through the Virgin. This is the higher power of love, which is born in the soul that is not pervaded by sensuality, and which cleanses, purifies, refines all souls. Human beings must awaken a soul like this in themselves, which does not mortify the sensual organs, but refines all sensuality, because the I, capital, the Christ, is born out of virginal matter. Christ is born in Parsifal. A higher virginal power opposes seductive Kundri. Kundri, that feminine element that pulls the human ego down into the sphere of sexuality, has to be overcome. In Kundri we meet the incarnation of that which, as the opposite sex, has pulled the human being down. Kundri has existed before, as Herodias, who demands the head of John the Baptist. She existed in a way similar to Ahasver, as a figure who can find no rest, who looks everywhere for her soul's salvation in sensual love. What Wagner has unconsciously hidden for us in his Parsifal is liberation from sensual love. We see how this thought twines its way up in his work. By the intuitive force of his being, already entitled the Flying Dutchman, he is led to the same problem. A man who wanders the seas is freed from his long wanderings by the sacrifice of a virgin. It is also the problem in Tannhäuser. Wagner depicts the minstrel's contest at Wartburg as a battle between the minstrel of the old sensual love, Heinrich von Ofterdingen, 
and Wolfram von Eschenbach, who represents the power of renewed spiritual Christianity. In the legend of this singing contest at Wartburg, it is precisely Heinrich von Ofterdingen who calls upon the help of Master Klingsor from Ungarland. But they are both conquered by the force that flows from Wolfram von Eschenbach. We now get a deeper understanding of Tristan, because we know that it is not about the mortification of love, but of the purification and catharsis of the love that is alive in him. From Schopenhauer's Negation of the Will, Richard Wagner lifts himself up to a return and purification of the will in the higher spheres. Wagner even brought this to expression in a drama that doesn't appear to contain it at all, in the title Meistersingers. It is there between the lines, as it were, in the purification of Hans Sachs, from the temptations he feels to win Eva for himself. This is not so much in the text as in the music. When you hear the music of the Meistersingers, you sense something of this purification. All this came together for Wagner in his Parsifal. He'd looked back to the original Brahmanic ideal. He saw with sorrow and pain the symptoms of decline in the present race. And he wanted to create a new impulse out of his art. The redemption of the race through a new spiritual content. This is what he wanted to give in his festival plays. Before he parted ways with Wagner, Nietzsche also wrote in this spirit about Dionysian art. He felt that something of a renewal of the mystery plays of ancient Greece was living in the festival plays. The Dionysius of Aeschylus and Sophocles, who take us back to the beginning of the fourth sub-race, were something that had contributed to the ascent of the cultural stream of the fifth sub-race. This redemption was experienced in the depths of the mystery temple of Dionysus. What had taken place in those times in the mystery temples, came out first in European lands. We stand before a Dionysus who incarnates into matter, celebrates his resurrection in the human being and his ascension into heaven. In the mystery temples, the Greek initiate experienced the descended God. There was something of a mood of sorrow in these Greek mysteries when it was said that in the future the God would rise again in human hearts. And in the northern sagas, the initiate druids spoke of a twilight of the gods from which a new generation would arise. The coming of Christianity was prophesied in the ancient mysteries of the druids. Richard Wagner saw the time being close at hand when Christianity must come to fulfillment, which had emerged in the first stages in the fourth and had to evolve further in the fifth sub-race in which this Christianity will speak its own unique language. Those who had been believers should now become beholders. Richard Wagner felt the pulse of earthly development, just as Edward Charest did, who, working out of this impulse, reconstructed the ancient mystery drama of the Eloicinian mysteries. Thus the event at Bayreuth shows us the coming together of two cultural streams, a revival of the mysteries of Greece, and a new Christianity. Thus Wagner, those around him, and also Edward Charest, felt this art to be the first prelude to a reunification of what had once split apart. In the original drama, 
at Eloises. Religion, art, and science were united as one until they separated. Art began to exist on its own, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and religion and science went their own ways. Three streams running alongside each other thus grew from their common root in the Greek mysteries. Initially, each of these streams could only become great by going its own way. Time found a specific religious expression for the heart, an artistic one for the senses, and a scientific expression for the rational mind. This had to happen, for only when people were able to unfold these capacities to their highest blossoming, but on separate paths, could a perfection be attained. Religion taken to the height of the Christian worldview is willing to unite again with art and science. Poetry, painting, sculptural art, and music will only reach their zenith when they unite once more with genuine religion. And science, which has only come to full development in modern times, has in truth given the impulse for the unification of these three streams. Now through Wagner, who was one of the first to sense the impulse for a new union of art, science, and religion, this reuniting is offered to humanity as a new gift of consecration. He felt that Christianity is called upon to reunite what was previously separated and incorporated this into his figure of Parsifal, that magical quality of Good Friday, which Wagner has set into his Good Friday mood, rings in our ears like the great sounding of a new culture. He recognized that soul development and race development must take separate paths, that it is important to lift souls and redeem them, that the resurrection of souls must be brought to pass despite the tragic destiny of being bound up with the body of the race which is in decline. Wagner wanted his works in Bayreuth to sound out the world of tone that points to a new future. A small part of humanity at least should hear those musical tones of the future. What Wagner made known to his time is a living artistic apocalypse. He did this like a true prophet who wants to point to a new era he knows will soon dawn. His life's work fades away like this. I will make known to you the faces that have appeared to me, and the time will come in which they will be realized. The end of Lecture 14